This show contains descriptions of violent crimes and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. At 11.10 p.m. on August 3rd, 2016, a badly injured woman called 112, the Swedish emergency number. She woke up and saw a man sitting on top of her husband in bed, stabbing him. When the perpetrator realized that she was awake, he started stabbing her as well. She was probably unconscious for a while, but when she came to, she called the emergency services to get help. She was badly wounded and hadn't yet realized that her husband was already dead. Ambulance and police were sent to the beautiful summer cabin in Granliden, outside the city of Arboga, in the middle of Sweden. This was the beginning of what would become one of Sweden's most infamous murder cases. Hi, and welcome to episode 37 of True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Panilla. This is part 2 of a three-part series, so if you haven't listened to part 1 yet, go back and listen to that part first. I'm going to give a short recap of what happened in part 1 before we left off. Johanna's husband, Aki Pasela, just drowned at her parents' summer cabin and she called the insurance company only four days after his passing to ask about the life insurance. The insurance company got suspicious, and they started an investigation on the case. But let's dive into what happened after that. Johanna had shortly before Aki passed also started her own business. To explain this new business of hers, we need to go back in time a few months to the beginning of 2015, the start of what has been known as the European Migrant Crisis. The European Migrant Crisis is a period beginning in 2015, characterized by high numbers of people arriving in the European Union from across the Mediterranean Sea or over land through Southeast Europe following Turkey's Migrant Crisis. It is a part of a pattern of increased immigration to Europe from other continents, which began in the mid-20th century. Of the migrants arriving in Europe by sea in 2015, 58% were males over 18 years of age, 77% of adults, 17% were females over 18, that's 22% of adults and the remaining 25% were under 18. 
The number of deaths at sea rose to record levels in April 2015, when five boats carrying almost 2,000 migrants to Europe sank in the Mediterranean Sea, with a combined death toll estimated at more than 1,200 people. The number of asylum seekers coming to Sweden started rising in the beginning of 2014. 81,300 people applied for asylum that year, which was an increase of 50% compared to 2013. It was the most since 1992, when 84,000 persons applied for asylum during the war in Yugoslavia. In February of 2015, it was expected that 90,000 people would apply for asylum during 2015 and 80,000 during 2016. The Swedish Migration Agency calculated a shortage of 15,000 accommodations, so they had to take measures to find homes with the help of private businesses. Nearly two weeks into October of 2015, 86,000 people had applied for asylum so far during 2015. Emergency accommodations such as drill halls or offices were needed. All in all, 162,877 people applied for asylum that year. That's 1.6% of the Swedish population. The situation was extreme. Johanna Möller, who held a job as a social worker in Eskilstuna back then, saw an opportunity to make money by referring asylum seekers to an accommodation. She asked a co-worker to start a business together, Pangelius Familiehemsvård AB. Translated, the company name means Pangelius Family Home Care Corporated. The mission was to place as many asylum seekers as possible and get paid by the Swedish Migration Agency. The Swedish Migration Agency was getting desperate. There were a thousand people every day seeking asylum. More refugees entered Sweden per day that period than there were asylum seekers per year before. Most profit lay in taking care of unaccompanied refugee children, those who are under the age of 18. A majority of the children were men between the ages 15 and 18. Clearly you need to be of a certain maturity to be able to travel alone across the world. The migration agency paid $8,000 per month and child to anyone who could place asylum seekers. Out of that amount, $2,300 was paid to the home that accommodated the child. Johanna's company was thriving. And she quickly realized that by starting their own living quarters, the full amount would go to their business, instead of having to pay a family to have the child live with them. Before the end of 2015, Johanna and her business partner had started their own asylum accommodation in a property in the town of Arboga. They did very well from the start, and soon they could hire two people to help out with administration and interpretation. 
Shortly thereafter, they opened up a second home. Soon, there were many children living in both their houses. Money was pouring into their bank accounts, and finally, Johanna was feeling less like a failure compared to her sister. But she didn't just help refugee children. She also started a relationship with one of the boys, a boy named Muhammad Rayabi. He would later move in with Johanna as her live-in boyfriend. But before we get into that, let's look into who he was. Muhammad Rayabi was born in Iran on January 8th, 1996. That means that he was 19 years old when he met the 40-year-old Johanna. Muhammad was a citizen of Afghanistan because both his parents were born and raised there. But because of the political situation in the country, they fled to Iran before Muhammad was born. He grew up in Tehran, the capital of Iran, with his parents and his older brothers. He went to school just like all the other boys in his neighborhood, but something happened in sixth grade when Muhammad was just 12 years old. According to Muhammad, a teacher attacked him for no apparent reason when he was minding his own business in school. When he tried to defend himself, he got in trouble with the principal and was later suspended. Since the family didn't have much money, he had to find a job to help support his parents. He did all sorts of things for money, but most often he would run errands for business owners in the city. When Muhammad was 15 years old, he was on his way from a grocery store with a package that was supposed to be delivered to a location further down the street. He was walking along the streets of Tehran when he was hit by a car. Luckily, he didn't suffer major injuries, but afterwards he struggled with back and neck pains. To cope with the situation, he started taking painkillers which led to other drugs, and it wasn't long before he was an addict. In the summer of 2015, he decided to leave Iran. He eventually made it all the way to Sweden. His first stop was Greece, where he registered as an asylum seeker in the European Union. They took his picture and fingerprints and gave him the necessary paperwork. Someone had told him that people under the age of 21 were not allowed to travel alone through Europe. So he stated to the Greek custom workers that he was born in 1994, not 1996. That suddenly made him 21 years old instead of the 19 that he really was. After registering in Greece, he continued through Serbia, Croatia... Austria, Germany, and Denmark on his way to Sweden. Mohammed hasn't explained why he chose Sweden as his final destination, but during his travels through Europe he met and talked to a lot of people who knew about the situation in the refugee camps in different locations. Mohammed was now officially 21 years old, but before he entered Sweden, he had learned that refugees under the age of 18 are treated much better than adults. 
So he decided to register his birth year as 1998 at the Swedish Migration Agency. And suddenly he was an unaccompanied migrant child. A 17-year-old who was placed in the refugee home owned by Johanna Möller in Arboga in October of 2015. He lived with nine other boys in the house, and he was quickly introduced to an interpreter that Johanna had hired, a man named Jafar Jafari. Jafari helped Muhammad understand the ways of Swedish living, and he was the link between him and the Swedish migration authorities. Jafari had come to Sweden as an unaccompanied migrant child in 2012, and was placed in a migrant home by Johanna Möller in her previous role as a social worker. Johanna then introduced him to her daughter, Emma, who was the same age as Jafari, 15 years old. The two of them really hit it off, and in early 2014, they announced their relationship publicly. Not long after, Emma was pregnant at the age of 17. The relationship between Jafari and Johanna's daughter Emma was complicated and many people have witnessed violence and abuse in their home. Jafari started hanging out with a crowd of people who were on the wrong side of the law, and he has been convicted of a couple of counts of aggravated assault and drug charges. For Mohammed, who was a drug addict even before he came to Sweden, he had now access to as much drugs as he could possibly ask for and he stayed with nine other young men with similar difficulties. Every Friday, Johanna and her business partner came to the house to check up on everyone. They never reported anything out of the ordinary to the migration authorities, although they must have known that there was an abundance of drugs and alcohol in the house. Instead, they just kept cashing in, Sometime around Christmas of 2015, Muhammad had to be rushed to the hospital due to an overdose. He was bound to a hospital bed for over a week. By now, Johanna had been getting some complaints from the neighbors regarding her migrant accommodation house. The success of her business had also drawn attention from local media, who were starting to look into her business more closely. When it was time for Mohammed to be released from the hospital, Johanna asked him if he wanted to move in with her in the apartment that she shared with her oldest son and her twins. He politely turned the offer down and went back to his friends in the house. Only hours after he got back, Johanna called him again, repeating the offer to stay with her. This time he asked her about her apartment how big it was, and where it was. When he heard it was in Eskilstuna, a city much bigger than Arboga, where he was staying, he decided to give it a chance. 
He was still recovering, and the Eskilstuna hospital is much more advanced than the one outside Arboga, in case he needed more medical care. So he packed his bags and said goodbye to Jafar and the other boys, and left for Eskilstuna in January of 2016. It was a bit awkward at first. He didn't speak Swedish very well yet, so they used Google Translate on their phones to communicate. He remembered small talking about nothing really that first night in Johanna's home. She was busy taking care of the twins, feeding them and making them ready for bed. He had been placed in the guest room and heard them go back and forth in the apartment behind his closed door. Sometime after 11pm, as he was about to fall asleep, he got a text from Johanna. My bed is very comfortable, it said. Mohammed didn't really understand if this was a translation misunderstanding by Google, or if she really meant what he thought it meant. Before he managed to send a reply, another text showed up on the screen. This time a little more assertive. Come sleep in my bed. Muhammad did as she wished, and they had sex for the first time that night. And this was the beginning of a very unequal relationship between the 41-year-old Johanna and Mohammed, who was officially only 17 years old, but in fact about to turn 20 that year. They decided to tell people that Mohammed was 28 to make the age difference between them seem smaller. Mohammed later told the police that he was flattered by the attention he got from the much older Johanna and she kept assuring him that she would eventually marry him to give him a chance to stay in Sweden. Mohammed had only just arrived and didn't speak the language. He didn't know if everything Johanna said about this asylum process was true, but he had no reason to doubt her. Johanna enrolled Mohammed in SFI, Swedish for Immigrants. His Swedish skills improved, but he was still reliant on Jafari's interpretation services and Google Translate. The local newspaper in Eskilstuna continued to scrutinize the licenses and permissions to accommodate unaccompanied refugee children. They published a couple of incriminating articles in February of 2016 and the migration agency closed down one of the two houses run by Johanna and her co-worker. She didn't have the proper paperwork to provide such a service, and the accommodation was deemed illegal. Johanna and her partner decided to close the other house at the same time, since it was only a matter of time before the agency did. The refugee children were moved to other addresses, Some moved into Johanna's home to keep the money coming in from the migration authorities. Up until now, Göran, Johanna's father, 
had been reasonably patient with Johanna. Her mother, Anki, had given up on her years before, but Göran still felt obligated to help her out. Both Göran and Anki had eventually found out that her husband, Aki, had died in August. She never told them that he had drowned at their summer cabin in Granliden, though. Instead, she told them a story about how Aki had a heart attack at his parents in Stockholm. Göran had seen how Johanna was struggling to keep her business growing as the local media was on her case, and the twins losing their dad was a tragedy. But it wasn't until Johanna opened up her home to the asylum seekers that Göran had a bad reaction. Anki, Johanna's mother, happened to walk in on Johanna and Mohammed having sex, and she told her husband Göran about it. And the two of them sat down and had a serious conversation with Johanna about her choices in life. They were very worried and had also noticed how the children were affected by this chaotic way of living. Johanna got upset and blamed her situation on bad parenting by both Anki and Göran. She told them how they had never loved her and she didn't want anything to do with them ever again. After that night, Johanna wouldn't let her parents see the twins anymore. She was really furious with her parents. Göran and Anki, on the other hand, they were discouraged by her anger. They were very disappointed in her. She had been given so many chances to change her ways, and they had supported her in every aspect of her life, and this is how she decided to repay them. It was time for Johanna to grow up and take responsibility for her own life. So Göran told her she needed to move out of the apartment that he owned 95% of. But he was not an evil man, so he gave her the rest of the year to find a new place to live. Göran also discussed with Anki that they should rewrite their wills, making sure Johanna didn't inherit more than they were legally obligated to give her. This information eventually reached Johanna. And as you can understand, she wasn't happy about it. Another thing that upset Johanna in the spring of 2016 was the fact that Göran and Anki had decided to sell the summer cabin in Granliden. They were getting older, and keeping the property meant a lot of work. Instead of putting all their time and energy into a house, they were planning on buying an RV a recreational vehicle that they could drive around in, both in Sweden and in Europe. Johanna was very upset when she heard the news about Granliden. She wanted the property to stay in the family and asked if she could buy it. But she didn't have the money right there and then, but maybe sometime in the future. This was not enough for Göran and Anki. 
So they moved forward with a realtor to have the house put on the market. This to Johanna's huge disappointment. So at this point, Johanna was about to be homeless with three children still living at home and her business was going down the drain. Johanna was getting desperate. She booked a weekend trip to go visit two of the boys who had stayed in the house in Arboga before it was closed down, Sami Ramani and Nasir Tayik. She arrived at the hotel in Gothenburg on Friday night, and on Saturday afternoon she called Mohammed to ask him to come join her in Gothenburg. She was in a very good mood when she greeted him at the train station. They went shopping in a nearby mall, and Johanna bought Mohammed a new iPhone 6 and some new clothes. Back at the hotel, they met up with Ramani and Tajik. At one point of this meetup, Tajik took Mohammed aside and told him that he and Ramani both had sex with Johanna on Friday night. And as if that wasn't enough for Muhammad to digest, he also showed him a video of the three of them having sex to prove it. Muhammad didn't know what to say. He wasn't emotionally attached to Johanna, but he did enjoy the perks of being her boyfriend. Her daughter was married to his drug dealer, and Johanna was always generous with money. When he later confronted Johanna about the video, she denied the whole thing and told him it wasn't her. She just shrugged it off and said they were lying. A week later, in early May, when Johanna and Mohammed were back in Eskilstuna, Ramani and Tajik showed up at their doorstep. Johanna let them stay in the apartment for about a week before they moved in to a mutual friend, Bashir Kavim, who also lived in Eskilstuna. Only days after Ramani and Tajik had left their home, they sent a text to Johanna, threatening her to publish the sex video on social media if Johanna didn't give them money and left her job placing migrants. Johanna gave Muhammad 5,000 Swedish kroner, that's about $500, and told him to drive down to Gothenburg with his two closest friends to settle the matter for her. Ramani and Tajik laughed at the $500 and told them they wanted $10,000. Muhammad promised they would get their money if they deleted the video right there and then, which they actually did, surprisingly enough. The three men drove back to Eskilstuna, and told Johanna that she now owed Ramani and Tajik $9,500. Johanna said she would think about it, but in reality, she had no intention of ever paying another dime to them. Instead, she was going to take care of it in another way. Weeks came and went, and the two boys started to realize that they had been lied to by Johanna and Muhammad. Every time they asked for their money, she would tell them another bad excuse of why she didn't have access to her accounts and so on. So when Ramani and Tajik finally understood they wouldn't get any money, 
They decided to make her life as messy as possible. They wanted revenge. Instead of moving on with their lives, Ramani and Tayik called the local newspaper and told him about what Johanna had been up to in the past year. Having sex with underaged boys, buying them alcohol and allowing drugs in the home. The local paper Eskilstuna Kuriden published an article about the scandal on June 16, 2016. The headline read... The supervisor had sex with migrant boys. And it was accompanied by an anonymized version of the video Ramani pretended to delete. Johanna wasn't named in the article, but everyone in Eskilstuna knew who the article featured. Everyone also knew who Johanna's business partner was. The business partner was very upset by these allegations who she believed were true and she asked to be bought out of their business immediately. One month later, on July 14th, Ramani and Tayik, who were visiting Eskilstuna over the weekend, were severely beaten at a party. Ramani told a journalist about what had happened afterwards. I opened the door, and in came eleven men, with guns and baseball bats. They attacked us. I tried to cover my head with my arms and hands, but they wouldn't listen to me. And then one of them asked me what I had done with the video and yelled at me to give him my phone. They took all of our phones and then left the apartment. The event was reported to the police, and both Ramani and Tayik, named Jafar Jafari, you know, the drug dealer slash interpreter, and Muhammad Rayabi. Johanna's boyfriend, as two of the men who assaulted them. Neither Muhammad nor Jafar was ever convicted, and they both denied being part of this. But it sure sounds like it was a part of Johanna's revenge. Once Johanna had taken care of the two extortionists, she needed to address a more urgent problem. The fact that she was running out of money and her previous support system a.k.a. her dad, was taken away from her. He had made it abundantly clear the last time they spoke on the phone in April that she was now on her own. She was very satisfied with the way things had panned out with Ramani and Tayik. It was time to give Mohammed an even bigger challenge. This time, the task wasn't just to beat somebody up. This time, she asked him to go further. Johanna wanted him to kill her parents. If Jaran and Anki died, she would inherit a large sum of money, but she needed to be clever about it, or else she would get nothing. Step one was to get Mohammed even closer to her. 
She told him a sob story about how her father, Göran, had sexually molested her regularly until she was ten years old. The reason why she hadn't told him this before was because she really loved her parents before they cut her off financially. And now, there was no reason to cover up anymore. She told Mohammed how much she loved him, and she would do anything for him as long as he helped her kill her parents. She would marry him, give him financial stability, and a chance to stay in Sweden forever. This conversation was repeated at least eight to ten times during the course of the summer of 2016. Muhammad was uncomfortable and felt confused. What if Yaran had molested Johanna? Didn't he deserve to die then? And he really wanted to stay in Sweden. Johanna had many different ideas on how he could approach the issue. She suggested he could go to her parents' apartment and kill them in their sleep. Or he could start a fire when Göran and Anki was at their cabin in Granliden. In early August, Göran and Anki were preparing for the open house showing of their beloved summer cabin in Granliden. The realtor had told them how August was a perfect month to sell the house. People would be able to see the lake and walk around the property in the warm, sunny weather. Johanna had some boxes and items left at the cabin, and she was asked to come and get everything before the open house. On August 2nd, 2016, Johanna, her oldest son Jonas, Mohammed, and Jafar Jafari drove to Granliden to pick her stuff up. For Mohammed... This was the first time he ever visited the cabin. Before they left the property that day, Mohammed told Johanna he would do it. Nothing else was being said about it at that time. The next day, August 3rd, Mohammed woke up at about 11.30 a.m. Johanna had left the apartment before he got up, so he just had a quick breakfast and left to go see his friend, Kasim Hussini. They just hung out in the park, smoking pot, when a third man joined them, a mutual friend. This friend had some heroin with him, and Mohammed took some. Before he came back home to Johanna's apartment, he had been at the liquor store to pick up some vodka to drink with the cocaine that he had scored at another friend's house. By the time he got home at around 7 p.m., he was pretty messed up by all the drugs, as you can imagine. He was half-sleeping on the living room couch when Johanna came home with her 13-year-old son. She told her son to take care of the twins while Mohammed and she went on the road trip to Katrineholm, a nearby town. He sluggishly got out of the couch and joined Johanna out the door. His eyes were only half opened, and he had to hold on to the railing when walking downstairs. They both got into Johanna's Volvo and drove to the head office of her company, where they switched cars to a Volkswagen that was parked outside. When asked about this later in police interrogations, Mohammed said he didn't really know why they used the Volkswagen instead of the Volvo. Johanna just said it was more comfortable. 
Muhammad left his cell phone and a charger in the office before they left. It was probably around 9 o'clock by now. He assumed that Johanna had her phone, but he later found out that she had left hers at home. Johanna told Muhammad to get into the car on the passenger seat. She drove out on the highway towards Arboga and asked him if he could kill her parents tonight. He got mad at her, but still, he said he would do it. Johanna and Muhammad are driving towards the cabin in Granliden. It's now about 9.30pm, and they have a one-hour drive to the cabin. Not much is said during the drive over there, but when they get off the highway and drive along the narrow roads that will take them to the cabin, Johanna makes a stop at the side of the road. They are sitting in the car for about 30 minutes, just talking about what is about to happen. She asks him straight out again, Will you kill my parents tonight? He says, Yes, I'll do it. And Johanna keeps asking him, Are you sure you really will do it? Muhammad says, No, I don't want to do it. But if I say no, will you take me back? Johanna replied, No, I won't take you back. Just give it a try. Please. He finally agrees, and Johanna hands him a sweater and a pair of gloves and tells him to put them on. And then she hands him a knife. She gives him a detailed description of the cabin to explain where her parents' bedroom is. They are sleeping in a room on the second floor, and the stairs are right next to the door. Before he left the car, she made sure he had understood that the lights need to be off on the first floor for him to enter the house. If the lights are off downstairs, it means that they have gone to bed. As Muhammad walked through the woods to the cabin, he heard Johanna's last word to him ringing in his ears. Both of them must die. The August night was warm and the sun had set. It was very quiet. The only thing heard was that of Mohammed's shoes breaking little branches and dry leaves with every step he took along the trail. He soon reached the house and sat down behind a large container in the yard. It was placed there because Johanna's parents were cleaning out the cabin and throwing things away before they were going to sell it. Muhammad smoked a cigarette. About five minutes passed. When he looked at the house from behind the container, he could see the lights were out, both downstairs and upstairs. He walked slowly towards the entrance door with a knife in his left hand. He walks up the stairs, careful not to slip or make any noises. With his right hand, he reaches for the handle and opens the door. 
He wasn't expecting it to be unlocked, so he was a bit surprised. Remembering what Johanna had said about her parents' bedroom, he walks up the stairs to the second floor. He could see that the bedroom door was slightly opened, but it was dark inside. Muhammad listens to the sound of the house, trying to understand if Yaran and Anki had fallen asleep yet. He stands outside of their bedroom door for about 30 minutes before he makes up his mind. Can you imagine this? It's so creepy. A strange man standing outside your bedroom door for 30 minutes while you are sound asleep inside. Anyway, Muhammad finally makes the decision to enter the bedroom. He walks straight up to Johanna's father, Jöran, who is lying on the left-hand side of the queen-size bed. After stabbing him a couple of times from the side of the bed, he climbs on top of him, straddling him while continuing to stab him repeatedly. By now, Anki is also awake, and she tries to understand what is happening. Muhammad shifts his attention towards her instead, stabbing her in the head and upper body. The assault is over within two minutes, and Muhammad quickly runs out the door, down the stairs and into the woods, looking to escape the scene as fast as possible. He reached the Volkswagen within minutes, finding Johanna half asleep in the driver's seat. He was soaked in blood. When reaching for the seatbelt, he accidentally touched Johanna's right shoulder, accidentally leaving a blood stain on her t-shirt. Johanna asked him what had happened, and he half screamed at her, You figure it out! When she followed up with a question, Did my parents die? Muhammad just told her, Shut up and drive. They drove the one-hour ride between Granliden and Eskilstuna while Johanna was asking Muhammad questions, trying to understand what had happened in the cabin. She asked him a series of questions about where he had stabbed them, if anyone woke up during the attack and such. It was now completely dark outside and they were getting closer to Eskilstuna. Johanna exited the highway by the McDonald's restaurant, driving another route back to her office to change cars again. When they drove across a bridge, Johanna slowed the car down and opened the passenger seat window and told Mohammed to throw the knife in the water. They came back to the office at around midnight, Muhammad took off his gloves and his sweater in the car and put them in a plastic bag. He went into the office restroom and washed his face. While he was in the bathroom, Johanna left the office. He stayed around the office for about 30 minutes more, digesting what he had just done. He took his phone, turned it on again and went looking for Johanna but he couldn't find her anywhere in the parking lot, and the Volvo was gone. 
He took the bag with the bloody clothes and walked to the center of Eskilstuna to withdraw a 1,000 kronor from Johanna's ATM card. That's about $100. He was planning on using it later that night to buy some weed. But his friend never answered his phone, so he went back to Johanna's apartment instead. He hid the plastic bag in some nearby woods on his way back home. At one in the morning, he took his blood-stained pants off and threw them in the washing machine. He didn't know how to turn the machine on, so he asked Johanna for help. The noise woke her 13-year-old son up. But they told him everything was all right and he went back to sleep. Muhammad took a shower and then went to bed. Back at the cabin in Granliden, things didn't go exactly as Johanna had planned. And that's where we're going to leave off for today. Thank you so much for listening to part two of this story. Part 3 will be out in a week here in the regular feed. You can also get Part 3 in a couple of days at patreon.com slash truecrimesweden. But before we leave off, I have a podcast recommendation for you. It's a new podcast called Apple for the Teacher, and it's hosted by Anna from Australia. Let's hear it from Anna herself. Hello everyone, let me tell you about the Apple for the Teacher podcast. I'm Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So you're probably thinking it's about reading, writing and arithmetic, right? Well, think again. It's a fresh take on true crime, where you wouldn't expect to find true crime. In schools, yes, schools. You will hear tragic stories about murder, abduction, school bus hijack, student disappearance, suicide, kidnap and ransom, a school camp tragedy, the list goes on. So if you're looking for something a little different in the true crime genre, then Apple for the Teacher is for you. So join me as I present the bad apples. But until then, remember to be a good apple. Thank you so much, Anna. Since I talked a little bit about Christmas in part one, I'm going to talk a little bit about New Year's now. My dad always said that New Year's Eve was amateur's night. The night everyone who usually don't drink get really drunk and obnoxious. And that might be true. But when I was younger, like teenage young, New Year's was something I looked forward to in months. What was I going to wear? What party was the coolest one to go to? And was he going to be there? Then, when I had kids, we celebrated with my dad and his wife for several years. Good food, great company, and either me or my husband drove home, which in Sweden means no alcohol at all. And we always did a cool thing at my dad's. His wife, Maria Lisa, is from Finland. And they have a tradition in Finland on New Year's to melt a lump of tin in like a big metal spoon. 
And then you take a bucket of cold water. And everyone drip a little of the melted tin into the bucket. And then you try to figure out what that little tin thing means. Because it tells you how the coming year is going to turn out. It's kind of fun. But the last couple of years, I kind of skipped celebrating New Year's altogether. Me and my husband spent the last two New Year's Eve in our cabin, just the two of us. Eating something extra nice and drinking some bubbly. And it's been so nice. I don't know if it's because I'm getting older or because I'm working so much that I just enjoy having a quiet night home instead of going to a big party. But we did go to a big party on the 28th of December and got all dressed up and stayed out late and all that. So I was perfectly happy with a more quiet celebration of New Year's after that. However you celebrated your New Year's Eve, I hope that 2020 will be a great year for you. And I hope you will continue to listen to my stories. I appreciate every single one of you who listens to what I do. Thank you so much, and I'll see you in part three. Goodbye! Hey, Doa!